welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Sheehan, currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts his podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experiences as a prosecutor in the Watergate case. I'm also an MSNBC legal analyst and the wearer of Jill's pins. And today's pin is a very clever one sent to me by a Twitter uh, fan, and it is a pigeon sitting on a stool. It is a stool pigeon, which seemed appropriate for today's guest who first came to public attention when he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times titled, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration, and signed it anonymous. He was willing to come out and talk about the chaos in the White House and the threat to democracy that Donald Trump posed and did it anonymously. So this seems like an appropriate pin. Um, It was very critical, this op-ed was very critical of the then current president and revealed many, many good reasons for the administration staff to work against the president that they were serving but it came with a lot of criticism from both sides. Democrats, because they wanted to question Anonymous and they wanted to know who he was, he or she, and Republicans, because they said it was all made up. Today's uh, pin is for that reason. Um, And the, the questions that swirled around who was Anonymous reminded me of the guessing games that took place during Watergate to determine who was Deep Throat, the source for Woodward and Bernstein. And uh, that's a whole subject that we could talk about later, Victor. Definitely. Well, our guest's real name is Miles Taylor. Before working for President Trump, Miles served in the George W. Bush administration, but he started his political career even earlier, while in high school and continued it during the Trump administration when he served as chief of staff under Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. It was while he was at the DHS in 2016 that he penned the anonymous New York Times op-ed. A year later, he left government and joined Google and published a book titled A Warning, also under the pen name Anonymous, in October 2019. Um, A year later, in October 2020, he revealed that he was anonymous. Since then, Miles has founded Republican Voters Against Trump, endorsed Joe Biden for president, and most recently co-founded the Renew American Movement alongside former governors, congressmen, and cabinet officials with the goal of preventing Donald Trump from running for office in 2024. This is going to be an action-packed conversation. Thank you, Miles, for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure, and we have a lot to discuss with you today. So let's get right into it. And I want to start with your entry into politics, which started at a very young age. You were an appointee in the George W. Bush administration. Um, so how old were you at that time? Yeah, uh, well, I was a baby Bushy, uh, as, as they called me. <laughs> I was probably 19 years old uh, when I joined the administration in one capacity or another, 19 or 20. Uh, I just remember that I wasn't of drinking age because when folks from the White House <laughs> and elsewhere would go to the bars in Washington, D.C., I either couldn't come with or they had to propose ways to, to sneak me in. So at, at one point, I was the, the youngest appointee in the Bush administration. Uh, and, and then they, they brought in someone incredibly even younger. Maybe they decided it wasn't so bad to have young blood around. So, yeah, yeah, I was, I was underage. Well, that's always, that's always a good thing when you show that as a, 
an example, you're not bad. That's my minimum standard that I set. Yeah. And you share that with Victor, who was, I think, the youngest delegate for the Biden um, election. So you two have that in common. Uh, I was definitely not the youngest. I don't think I was the oldest, but I may have been. Um, anyway, the Republican Party, when you were 19, yeah. is not the Republican Party that it is today. In fact, it's hard for me to even say the words Republican Party and know what it means, because it's really the Trumplican Party now. Um, so I'm curious what your reaction has been to this change in the party and how you felt when Trump ran for office. Did you know what was coming? Well, look, it's a good question. I want to, I'll start with the first piece. On the party, um, I don't think any of us could have imagined it would come this direction. And, and I'll offer you know, fair warning in advance. I was never a very political person in terms of working on campaigns. I've never worked on a single campaign in my life. I was always a policy guy. You know, I got into public policy because of 9-11 and stayed in the national security field, largely working on counterterrorism and cybersecurity and nation state threats from Russia and China, those sorts of things. Um, but we've seen a really, really sharp turn in our politics and one that's made me more interested in, in working the campaign side, because frankly, that's the only way you can turn it around is at the ballot box. Um, and I said something a few months ago that really ruffled feathers among my you know, former colleagues on, on the right is I was asked, you know, what's the single greatest national security threat to the United States right now? And I said, and I stand by this, that I felt like my party, the Republican Party, was the greatest national security threat I'd seen in my lifetime. Now, that sounds like hyperbole, but let me break that down. When we were face to face with Al Qaeda, and ISIS and other nation state threats, our enemies usually prioritize as their top goal, undermining our democracy and weakening Americans' faith in democracy, the democratic experiment, and thereby weakening U.S. national security, right? I mean, that was a, the a preeminent goal of the Soviet Union was to weaken the democratic Western world order. Uh, they failed at it. The Soviet Union collapsed. Al-Qaeda didn't even get close uh, to, to putting cracks in the edifice of the Western democratic order. But the current, the modern Republican Party, the Trumpist Republican Party, has done more damage to American democracy in just a matter of years than those adversaries did, uh, and in some cases, decades, by legitimately undermining Americans' faith in democratic institutions, the process. Um, that, to me, is a very, very significant national security threat in the traditional sense of the term. So I still consider myself a national security policy guy. It's just, but I never imagined the threat would come from within rather than from without. Uh, and to your question about seeing Donald Trump coming, I mean, look, anyone who watched the 2016 presidential campaign and did not conclude that Donald Trump was a bad manager at a minimum and a man of highly objectionable character uh, was either willfully ignorant or lying. I mean, it was very clear who he was from the beginning. And at the time I was working as an aide on Capitol Hill. Paul Ryan was the Speaker of the House. And we were trying to implement what behind the scenes we called the Trump inoculation plan. We were trying to slow down his movement in the primaries and get him out of the race because it was so clear he was a terrible influence, not just on the party, but that he would be, even being in the race, was doing damage to our civic discourse and to our country. So never imagined he would be president. He was dead last in the field as far as I was concerned in terms of who was qualified. But of course, we all know what ended up happening. 
Um, I had no desire to go into the Trump administration, but when I saw people I knew and respected like John Kelly going in, um, I became more open to it. I said no at the beginning. Uh, you know, Kelly's team came back to me and said, you know, come join us. There are really serious problems. Uh, I agreed to do it. But again, no one walked in, or at least I hope no one walked in thinking uh, they were going to be uh, walking out with, with glory and accolades. This was going to be a train wreck from the start. The question was, could you prevent it from being a fatal train wreck? So did you think you could at least keep to some of the traditional Republican policies, which, of course, would not have included supporting Putin, um, as the right-wing media is doing now and as the Trump administration did? Did you expect to have more leeway and maybe bring about the policies that you as a traditional Republican would have uh, been for? Yeah. Like a lot of folks, I naively thought that once elected, the office would potentially have um, sort of a, uh, uh, you know, an effect on Donald Trump in a way that would make him more moderate. I mean, you, you go back to almost any president. You could find quotes from Barack Obama, George W. Bush, uh, Bill Clinton, who said that being in the office changed them. And, you know, many of us hoped that it would do the same to Donald Trump and that, yes, you know, you could moderate him to a certain extent and try to implement a, a sort of rational, you know, GOP uh, executive branch. Here's how I would measure. If I was going to do a scorecard, let me pull it back to what I think are the three core pillars of the Republican Party, free minds, free mm -hmm. markets and free people. Uh, the hope was, yeah, you could get uh, a Trump administration that, uh, you know, pushed for open discourse and, you know, uh, an open economy and competitive economy and, uh, you know, pushed for freedom around the world. We ended up getting the exact opposite in every single instance. So in the case of free minds, you had a Donald Trump who came out and literally attacked the press as the enemy of the people. That's the best example, okay? This is a man who completely objected to the idea of dissent, dissenting opinions, reaching across the aisle. So push that out of the equation. Free markets, Donald Trump became one of the most protectionist presidents we've seen in modern times, completely antithetical to the, three, uh, the free market uh, you know, views of the Republican Party. So push that out of the equation. And then finally, free people, I witnessed firsthand as Trump had a very clear preference for dealing with autocrats over Democratic allies, and in fact, would flagrantly dismiss our Democratic allies and openly embrace our autocratic ones. So throw that out of the column. I mean, I remember when Trump was going to a G7 meeting uh, in Canada, and he didn't even want to go. He said to us, I don't want to go. This is pointless. It's a waste of time. He went, he got into these big fights with Trudeau and Angela Merkel, uh, and then he left early. And what did he do right afterwards? He flew halfway around the world to go meet with Kim Jong-un in North Korea. There's no better side-by-side -side than that of him blowing off his Democratic allies and going to embrace uh, probably, you know, the world's most bloodthirsty dictators. So that those were his priorities. And when that became clear, I mean, to me, uh, it meant it was time to leave and, and oppose it from the outside. That's a great explanation. During the administration, you were really vocal about the family separation policy in particular. Can you talk more about that? And if that was the tipping point for you? Uh, it certainly was one of them. I mean, look, when the policy was developed, I was in a completely different job. So I came into the administration as sort of the national security advisor to the secretary handling counterterrorism issues, sensitive intelligence issues. 
So as that was being discussed with the Justice Department and, and DHS, um, it was very peripheral to what I was doing. But I was aware of what was happening largely because there were people in our office who said, you know, look, this this can't go forward. In the course of it being approved and then implemented, I stepped into the deputy chief of staff job at the Department of Homeland Security. And I can tell you that thing was an absolutely foreseeable humanitarian disaster. And, and Victor, to your question, such an obvious example of why all of these forces of Trumpism were resulting in really, really, really bad policymaking and why, frankly, people had failed to moderate the man. Now, let me walk you back in time. There were folks months before this went into effect saying, look, if this goes forward, the U.S. government doesn't have the resources, it doesn't have the people, it doesn't have the ability to prosecute everyone at the border and quickly get everyone reunited if they have to be deported or ready to come back in if they've been approved for entry, right? But that's what Jeff Sessions wanted to do, prosecute everyone coming across the border. These warning signs should have been heated. I mean, there were folks that said, it gets very, very complicated, but at the core, the Department of Homeland Security can only keep people in its custody for a few days because if you've been to border facilities, they're not hotels. This isn't Holiday Inn Express. They're concrete facilities. They're under maintenance. They're not, they're, they're kind of disgusting places and Congress hasn't funded them. It's not a place where you keep a child for more than a few hours, in my opinion. Yet by prosecuting everyone at the border, there, there was this huge backlog in the courts. And so these parents are waiting for their day in court while their children are waiting for them. And then under U.S. law, rightfully, after a certain amount of time, you have to put a child in more appropriate circumstances. And that means they get transferred to health and human services. So it was this total catastrophe of parents waiting in line for court, then the children being moved from one place to another, something that should have never, ever, ever happened. Now, to me, yes, I thought a lot of people should have resigned in the wake of that. Um, it was one of the first big dominoes that pushed me to end up writing the anonymous op-ed against Trump and saying that his administration was basically in chaos. Um, but, you know, we still haven't we still haven't learned that lesson, I don't think, of how a man of such deficient character can result in policies like that. Because honestly, any other president, in my view, would have heard that information, heard the protests from within his administration and said, yes, I will order the attorney general to stop this before it turns into a catastrophe. Instead, it took it blowing up completely for us to go to Trump behind the scenes and say, you must issue an executive order telling the attorney general to change his mind. Because the Secretary of Homeland Security can't go tell the Attorney General to change his policy. Only the President can. And it took this thing turning into a complete five-alarm fire crisis to convince Trump to do that. And then here's what's more shocking, though, Victor. I later became DHS Chief of Staff and then had immigration under my remit. Family separation had ended. And within weeks of it having ended, Donald Trump was saying to us in unrelated meetings in the Oval Office, turn it back on. Not only turn it back on, but I want it harsher this time. All right, so he didn't even understand that the fact that children were separated from their parents was a really, really bad uh, effect of the policy. He thought it was the purpose of the policy. And not only that, he wanted to reinstitute it and make it more cruel. That was the president of the United States and the commander in chief in 2018. And, and frankly, is one of the reasons why I went out and campaigned against him is to say, listen, folks, if he gets reelected, this is one of the things he wants to do. He will reinstate family separation in a crueler and more direct way. That's un-American. So you mentioned your anonymous op-ed. 
and uh, I really want to talk more about that. You wrote it in 2018. It caused quite a stir, um, both with the revelations and opinions expressed, uh, but also about who was anonymous. You know, big question mark. Who 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 wrote this? Uh, we do have a link to your op-ed in our show notes so our listeners can get to read a little bit more about what you've already described as criticizing the chaos and cruelty of the administration. Um, I want to ask about your decision to publish it anonymously. Um, you, well, let's just talk about that. Let's start there. Yeah, um, you know, look, it really came down to this. Uh, you know, the intent wasn't to hide my criticisms. Um, I had pledged I was always going to unmask myself before the 2020 election because I think it's important to own your perspective, own your voice, and go out there. But what I learned about Donald Trump is he's the master of the politics of personal destruction. And it's also a major distraction. So when someone has some a legitimate criticism of him, he immediately turns it into an attack on the person and the substance gets completely and immediately lost. Now, I'm not comparing myself to a founding father in any way, shape or form, but that's one of the reasons why the founding fathers did this with the Federalist Papers, is they worried that in arguing for the Constitution, if they did it under their names, it would become a food fight about who these characters were and it would distract. So they all published under the pseudonym Publius. And in fact, uh, this isn't well known, but when I submitted the op-ed, op inspired by that example, I actually wanted to use the pseudonym Publius, but it turns out the New York Times doesn't do pseudonyms. They said, no, we're going to actually just put anonymous. So I didn't, I didn't choose that. They chose that. Um, but, I, but I wanted to use that for a reason, is to make clear Publius would have been a nod towards, look, I'm, I'm doing this so that the substance doesn't get lost. And at the time, the substance was that the majority of Donald Trump's cabinet believed he was unfit for office and even dangerous, and were actively trying to get him to reverse his bad instincts. That was the reality inside the administration. I was very frustrated that people weren't saying it from within. And so, yes, that was the vehicle I decided to use. Now, I'll, I'll make a caveat. The main thrust of that op-ed was completely wrong. Because the main thrust was not just that Donald Trump was incompetent and the majority of his cabinet believed it. That was true and remains true. But I said that there were people in the administration working to protect the executive branch from within, that they were guardrails for democracy. That turned out to be a political fantasy because Donald Trump, in short order, systematically identified those people and removed them, removed them from the administration. So unelected bureaucrats turned out to be not a very strong guardrail against Donald Trump. And it's it's the reason why I then repudiated myself and, and wrote the book a warning. I basically said, look, I was wrong. Unelected bureaucrats aren't going to save us from Donald Trump. Nothing's going to save you from Donald Trump. Stop hoping for impeachments and prosecutions. The only thing that's going to save him is the thing that the founders intended, uh, save us is the thing the founders intended, and that is the people themselves, right? It is us choosing not to reelect him. That was my warning. I'm glad the American people heeded it, but um, but we still face, I think, the same warning today because he could uh, reemerge and and really we're back to the same place we were before, hoping that you know he gets prosecuted and someone else takes him out of the political system. I suspect we're going to be back in the same position at some point here, where we ourselves are going to have to make the decision not to go down that road. Very interesting perspective because. Um, it does seem like he has actually gained some power, although recently 
uh, there are some Republicans who are speaking out against him and saying that maybe his power is diminishing. Uh, do you have an opinion on whether his power has diminished right now? Uh, there's good news and bad news. I'll start with the bad news because I like to finish with the silver lining. The bad news is that candidates around the country are still pledging fealty to Donald Trump. I'm a lifelong Republican. I look at these races every single day. And even very, very moderate people behind the scenes, reform-minded people who hate the former president, are still publicly paying homage to him because they're worried if they don't, they're going to lose the base and they won't win their elections. That's the bad news, is it's endemic across this country in Republican political races. The good news is that the polls show that the actual voters themselves, the primary voters, are increasingly putting distance between themselves and Donald Trump. So John Bolton runs a political action committee that put a, a very credible poll in the field a few weeks ago that found that compared to last September, there's been a big hit in Donald Trump's numbers among Republican primary voters. Specifically, last September, uh, something like one in three Republican primary voters said, I am a Trump Republican. Now that number's closer to one in 10. Uh, that, that's a big change over the course of that period of time. And we also are seeing increasingly folks say in the Republican Party that they want to see a fresh face as a leader. I think last year, a number of polls showed that the majority of Republicans viewed Donald Trump as the leader of the party and wanted him to remain as such. Now some polls show that a very slim majority, 51%, would rather see a new face. So that's good news. The trend lines are heading that direction. But um, but we need the candidates themselves to start waking up to that. And there's a big lag time. They're very scared to do that. And so they're still running on the mantle of Trumpism. So for those who think that on November 3rd, the battle was won, November 3rd, 2020, I would say uh, that, that they're actually wrong, that going into the midterms, the battle is harder than it even was in 2020 because we have a thousand mini Trumps around the country. And a lot of folks really aren't awake to that. They just don't pay attention as much to down ballot races. And there are some real, real spooky characters to worry about this upcoming election. Uh, that is for sure. And our show has featured some of the down ballot races. I want to ask you one last question on this subject, which is you mentioned um, that you had a lot of support or you had talked to a lot of people who also agreed with you that he was a danger to our democracy. And you've even described uh, cabinet level discussions about using the 25th Amendment. And now there's some talk about using a conviction on insurrection or for the violation of his um, taking documents from the archives, which can lead to forfeiture of office and barring from future office. Um, was there any serious discussion really of using the 25th Amendment or of a mass resignation to highlight the danger that he posed? Uh, you know, there were folks in the administration, uh, a number of senior cabinet secretaries who actively discussed whether or not to invoke the 25th Amendment and, and deem Donald Trump unfit for office. The decision was ultimately made not to do that. And I think for the right reasons. There was a fear that if Donald Trump was removed by his own cabinet, it would be seen as a coup by many people across the country. And look, January 6th is enough to show us that there was a tinderbox in this country of folks ready to perceive that narrative. And Donald Trump absolutely, we know, would have peddled that narrative and said he'd been thrown out by a coup. And I think you could have seen a much more volatile situation across this country. So ultimately, that was the right decision. Although I'm not going to lie, even after members of the cabinet in the first year had said, 
you know, we can't go that route. Um, many of them were still pondering the idea of, and I'm using someone's direct words here, a senior person at the White House, of giving him enough rope to hang himself. And by that, I mean, he was constantly proposing presidency wrecking ideas that people around him rightfully as public servants wanted to prevent him from implementing. But at the same time, they knew if he implemented some of those ideas, like invading Mexico, it could be enough to impeach him and throw him out of office. But, you know, was it worth the consequences? You know, invading a Southern ally? You know, no, that's not worth the consequences. And, and that's anti-democratic. Um, so rightfully, the 25th Amendment, I think, wasn't invoked. But on the point of mass resignations, I'll say I think this was a, a tremendous failure. Um, instead of these concerned cabinet members resigning in mass, we saw them picked off by Donald Trump one by one by one. Um, you know, starting with Rex Tillerson, his secretary of state, H.R. McMaster, his national security advisor, Tom Bosser, his homeland security advisor, Jeff Sessions, his attorney general, Jim Mattis, his secretary of defense, John Kelly, his uh, chief of staff and former secretary of homeland security, and on and on down the list. He one by one went to each of these people and got rid of them because he knew they would stand up to him in private. And he didn't want that. He wanted the Oval Office to be an echo chamber. It would have had a much greater impact if all of these people, rather than slowly walking to the guillotine, had left at once and flagged it for the American people. That was discussed, and folks were worried in the lead up to the 2018 midterms that if they did it, it might cost Republicans uh, you know, the House, and then Trump would blame that on them, and so maybe better to wait until after the midterms. But then after that happened, Trump started to go after them one by one anyway. So um, I, look, I personally remain deeply, deeply disappointed that some of those people have remained silent. Um, we're talking about a lot of folks who are at the very end of their careers and have nothing to lose by going out there and telling the truth about what it was like behind the scenes. Instead, most of the people you saw quit the administration and campaign against Donald Trump uh, were folks at my level, folks that the American people had never heard of. Who the hell is Miles Taylor? You know, who the hell is Olivia Troy and Elizabeth Newman and Alexander Vindman? These people who were mid-career professionals who had everything to lose ended up being the ones to go out there and say, we can't do this. I still hope, though, that more of those folks will peek their heads out. And I suspect that that may be the case if we see Trump run for, um, you know, public office again. But I, I hope we don't end up in that circumstance. With the time that we have left, I just want to maybe quickly move on to um, this group that you formed called Renew America. And this is um, a group that you formed with cabinet officials or former cabinet officials, governors, congressmen. Can you tell us more about who's a part of this movement and what your goal is um, with the Renew America movement? Yeah, well, look, I personally, after uh, November 3rd of 2020, um, thought, you know, the job is done and, and we could move on. Um, I was going to happily retreat to the private sector and, and put my life back together in, in the wake of you know several years of going after ex-President Trump. Then January 6th happened, and I got a phone call from a good friend, Evan McMullen, who had, had in 2016 run for president against Donald Trump, started the great pro-democracy organization and was still in the fight. And he said, you can't tap out now. And our worry was, a lot of the Republicans who had voted for Joe Biden and voted to kick Donald Trump out would go back to the tribe, would go back home and, uh, and, and the Trumpists would kind of take over. So we felt like we needed to launch an effort to make sure that center-right uh, voters in this country, centrists, you know, moderate conservatives, continued to vote with the pro-democracy side. So that was the genesis of the Renew America movement. 
Um, and it evolved into an organization to reinforce a common sense coalition at the center of American politics. So as you note, Victor, our organization is led by a group of former governors, senators, congressmen, cabinet secretaries, uh, former leaders of the Republican Party like Michael Steele. And what we've done is announced candidates around the country, both Democrats and Republicans, that we view as centrists and that we view as folks that are a bulwark against uh, the anti-democratic pro-Trump extremes. We want to protect those people in their races, and we also want to go after the most far-right extremists like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar and Madison Cawthorn and these folks. So that's what we've done. We've launched this organization. We've got a team that's uh, that's you know growing around the country, state leaders around the country, to frankly go defend the good guys and beat the bad guys. That's all it comes down to is we've got to protect unifying centrist political actors in this extremist climate and go after the more radical ones. Because if we don't deliver consequences at the ballot box, these folks are never going to learn. So uh, that's what we're trying to do. And I'm not going to lie, it's an uphill battle. If there is a struggle within the Republican Party between the rationals and the radicals, right now the radicals are winning. And those on the rational reform side are a, um, you know, a scrappy, uh, uh, you know, band of rebels, and, and, and there's, you know, we've seen throughout history, scrappy bands of rebels uh, prevail in the end, um, but it's hard. And so, you know, it's a hard fight right now. And, and, you know, we're trying to enlist as many folks as we can in the fight. So you have an, another group as well. And I just wanted to make sure that we cover both groups and also the future of the Republican Party and whether, because what you're saying now is you're sponsoring Democratic candidates as well as Republican candidates who are centrists. Uh, so sort of to bring people to the middle, uh, away from the extremes on both sides. And so in terms of majority, uh, obviously the Democrats have a larger number of people in it. The radical Republicans seem quite um, engaged and are doing really well. So the question is, what's the right solution here for Republicans who believe in the traditional Republican values? Uh, is it to form a new party? Is it to coalesce with Democrats to defeat the extremists? You know, what's your view? And also talk a little bit about Republican Voters Against Trump, which is the other organization. Yeah, the um, you list a really good menu of options, Joe. And I think the first one has got to be the short-term Band-Aid solution is patriotic, principled Republicans need to team up with unifying centrist Democrats. It's what Christy Todd Whitman, the former governor of New Jersey, she and I published an op-ed in the New York Times uh, calling this coalition campaigning. We're not arguing for coalition government yet. We're not saying that moderate Republicans need to break away in the Senate and the House and caucus with the Democrats, although I'm not going to lie, if Donald Trump wins again, that may be the type of thing that's needed to put a check on him. But what we're saying is coalition campaigning needs to happen. And some of these tough races around the country, we need concerned conservatives to join with these patriotic progressives to help good folks win races. And I'll give you concrete examples. In Arizona, we are likely in this cycle to have a, a very Trumpy person be the nominee on the Republican side. There's a, they're, a, they're falling all over themselves to be Trumpy in the Republican primaries. And whoever that person is, is going to run against Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly is an incumbent Democrat, former astronaut, a patriot, really just a great public servant. That's a classic case of a place where 
Republicans need to say, you know, I voted my whole life straight ticket, but rather than have one of these lunatics, uh, yeah, this time around, I can vote for the other side. And that's what we're trying to do around the country is highlight those unifying figures, put them on the radar of, you know, moderate to conservative folks and say, look, this is what's needed to protect democracy is, yeah, you deciding to vote for the other side and put country over party. We saw it in 2020. If you look at the battleground states and the exit polls, Joe Biden largely won the battleground states because he won over disaffected Republicans. He got 7% of people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 to come vote for him in 2020. That was significant. If it wasn't for those folks who switched sides, Joe Biden would have not won the presidency. So we're trying to do that down ballot this cycle and have the same impact and convince folks that they should do the same thing in their Senate and House races in these key battlegrounds. So that's what we're trying to do right now. But Jill, to your last point, whether a a new party needs to be created or a third force in American politics, um, I think that's very much still on the table. And if you, again, look at the numbers, the American people are showing a desire to see something like that emerge. For the first time ever last year, 50% of Americans said it, said they were political independents. They were neither Republicans or Democrats. Half the country. Now, what other marketplace have you seen where 50% of consumers say, I don't like the products I'm being offered? So that signals to me that whatever happens with the Republican Party, there is underlying demand for another force in American politics. And I think we'll see that in our lifetimes. Um, And we may need to see it sooner rather than later if we have to uh, put a check on, uh, on a return of Donald Trump. You know, I'm old enough to remember when there was bipartisanship, there was one set of facts, and there was debate about the policy implications of agreed upon facts. And we're so far from that now that it's, it's almost hard to foresee how we are going to resolve the issues. But I think having someone doing the things you're doing to bring people together is certainly a good thing. And um, hoping that it will have some consequences. Uh, but let, And actually, maybe let me ask you about if you think there is some way to get the Trump base to accept what is truth to accept reality, whereas right now they're hearing on Fox News that there was fraud in the election and all of these other things. When are they going to be able to accept that those are lies? Because uh, everything you did in terms of your book and your op-ed was before the big lie started. Yeah. So can I, you address that? I think it's really hard. I mean, I'll, I'll close in saying, you know, I think some of these folks that have propagated conspiracy theories and condoned political violence have so wedded themselves to that worldview that we're facing, frankly, a generational struggle to excise that from our political system. It's going to take quite some time. But again, I like to go back to silver linings. My friends call me Mr. Mr. Brightside. So I'll say, you know, we're seeing that, uh, you know, first it was 15%, then 20%, now close to 30% of Republicans that are in the category of disaffected Republicans, um, are, are really open to uh, moving on. And, and again, like I said earlier, you know, if you believe other polls, you know, close to half want to see a new face lead the party. There is an openness to moving on. There's always going to be an extremist element that believes things like the big lie that continues to propagate these conspiracy theories. But we've got to offer them alternatives. And the only language the extremist side speaks, like Donald Trump, their progenitor, 
is the language of winning and losing. So to, to get them to move on, I think you've got to deliver consequences at the ballot box. Um, but there's a more unifying aspect to this. And, um, and Jill and Victor, as, as you, know, you both were alluding to, there's something cathartic about working with the other side, about reaching across the aisle. Bipartisanship is cathartic. And you don't have to think about politics to imagine that. Just imagine in your own life, someone who's been a hostile adversary, but you realize through empathy is actually sort of human and you bury the hatchet. That catharsis can lead to really, really, really great things. If we can do that in our politics, I think one, it'll it'll help fix the national psyche, which is pretty battered after, still battered after Trump's term. But two, uh, I think it can create some real progress in our politics. So that's what we're trying to do. It sounds utopian, but in reality, there's practical political opportunities to make it happen uh, by bringing folks together on the ground to unify uh, you know, around centrist candidates. And hopefully we can do that this cycle. In an era of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Ron DeSantis and Gosar and Hawley and Boebert, and I could go on and on and on, it gets harder and harder to see uh, them being part of any coalition that would make sense. Um, but I hope you're right and that there is an opportunity. I, I would like that to happen. Victor, do you want to ask the last question? So I, I guess, you know, hearing you say this, um, I guess, do you have any advice for young Republicans um, in my generation on what their role should be in this party? You know, they've known Trump for their whole life. How should they react to this? And, and what do you think their role should be in, in this new Republican Party? As insipid as it sounds, the advice for young Republicans is please speak up. That's that's the demand signal. Uh, right now, look, we learned a valuable lesson in the era of Trump, which is that I think everyone knows that the majority of Republicans on Capitol Hill loathe Donald Trump. I mean, how could people not realize that? I mean, I, I worked on Capitol Hill for a very long time. I knew tons of these members, still friends with many of them, almost all of them bad talking behind the scenes. They just want him out of the party. They want him to go away. Yet very few of them say that publicly. And that had a huge cost because it legitimized Trump and Trumpism and this really, really divisive, corrosive political tenor uh, during the Trump years. But again, that was enabled by people who just didn't say anything. Um, I like to say that you know, I, I, I take a lot of things back to economics. Right now, the price of dissent is very high, right? Dissent is very costly. When people speak up, they face a lot of consequences. In my case, speaking out against Donald Trump cost me my home, my job, my marriage, my personal security, my savings. Um, you know, that's okay. I went in eyes wide open to that. I knew that would happen. But the, the election worker, the school board member, you know, the mid-level public servant who just goes and does the right thing, they shouldn't be attacked and villainized. Um, they shouldn't have to worry about speaking the truth. So the cost of dissent is very high. And if you're a student of economics, there's only two ways to reduce the cost of something. You either decrease demand, and if you decrease demand for something, the price drops. Well, we don't want to decrease demand for dissent, right? We want people to dissent. That's a good thing in an open society. Or in any marketplace, you can increase the supply. When you increase the supply of something, the price drops. In this case, we're talking about truth. If we increase the supply of truth, if we increase the supply of dissent, the cost of it will go down, right? Because there's strength in numbers. When people speak up, it becomes easier for the next person to speak up. I mean, during the 2020 campaign, when a number of us who'd been in government while Trump was president came out against him, at first, it was a very lonely place. It was like, oh man, no one's gonna join us. The message is gonna get lost. 
But increasingly, more folks saw that they had air cover and did that. And I think it did have some impact in convincing other Republicans around the country that they could have they could vote against Donald Trump. And it was OK. I'd say the same thing to young Republicans right now. Most of them, if you, you know, again, go back to the numbers, you dig in. Most of them really want to move beyond Donald Trump. But they're kind of scared to say that to their peers because they're scared of getting attacked. Once they get over that hump, they can have a massive difference uh, in the party and, and redirecting us away from these authoritarian impulses. It's not just about Donald Trump. It's, again, these impulses that have overtaken our political system. So hopefully folks will do that. Again, I know it sounds banal uh, to just speak up, but my God, it has such an incredible influence. And in doing so, like I said, you can lower the price of dissent and make it easier for the next person. So that's what I'd say. There is real strength in numbers. And, you know, Miles, we are so grateful for you to come on the show. Um, thank you so much. Victor and Jill, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks for what you're doing in the fight. Jill, I love that conversation so much. Um, I thought one of the most interesting things he said was at the very end when he talked about the importance of young people and just anyone speaking up. Um, I'm wondering if there was ever a time in your life when you felt like you had to speak up or if you were inspired by someone else's speaking up um, that inspired you to do so yourself. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, it's like we don't want to reduce demand for that, but we want to increase the number of people who do it um, so that more people speak up without having to realize the costs uh, of speaking up. Luckily, I have always felt free to speak up. And of course, part of that is because I grew up in an era of bipartisanship where we had uh, honest debates and discussions of policy implications. So that has never been a problem. Um, one time when I did face should I resign in protest was after the Saturday Night Massacre when Richard Nixon uh, obtained the firing of the attorney general and the deputy attorney general and uh, got the solicitor general who became the acting attorney general to fire the special prosecutor, Archie Cox. And in the office we debated because there was no grounds for firing Cox whether we should all resign in protest. But Cox counseled us that we knew the evidence better than anyone could and that until we were fired, unless we were actually fired and prevented from continuing our work, that we owed it to the American people to stay and do our job. And so we did stay. Um, but that was a time when I actually had to face that. I also faced it in terms of in anticipation of the Saturday Night Massacre. We had copied key documents and taken them home with us. Now, revealing them would have been illegal because they were obtained through grand jury, and that remains uh, under the protection of grand jury secrecy. But we had all decided that we would be willing to go to jail if it became necessary to reveal those other than through an indictment and trial, if Nixon did something that was so dangerous to democracy. We are lucky we never had to actually act on that, uh, and we were able to go through indictment and trial without any uh, problems. What about you? Well, I haven't faced anything like that before, but um, I, I know just just in like very very small context, you know, as a as a student, there are sometimes moments where I feel like you know should I speak up, and then I see someone else speak up, and it's through them that inspires me to you know, speak up and, and use my voice. But I think what he said about Republicans in this movement, I think it just goes to why his movement is so important because he has all these former congressmen, current congressmen, current elected officials, former elected officials, um, former cabinet members speaking up all in one 
effort to unite the Republican Party and to really prevent Donald Trump from gaining power. And I think, you know, there's something I think he said it was, you know, um, a little bit, I don't know what the exact word he used was, but basically it was kind of, uh, I guess, interesting advice for young people. Um, but I think using their voice to speak up is is such an important thing. And having seeing these people speak up and th these elected officials speak up, I think is something that will inspire young people, hopefully, to use their voice for better. And, you know, you see people on TV use their voice, people on TV who, you know, speak up against the Donald Trump you know, the Donald Trump administration, what they're doing. And it really serves, I think, as a launching pad for young people to realize, realize that they also have a role in this movement and to use their voice for good. So um, I think what he's doing is so important. And I think for young people can serve as a really good source of inspiration. I would say one of the most effective ways that young people can speak and be heard is by voting. You mm -hmm. can make a big difference. And Young people are among the lowest voting percentage. They don't go out and vote, and they need to, because right now democracy stands ready to collapse if we don't make sure that people who care about it go out and vote. So I'm urging anyone listening to this, because I'm also assuming if you're listening to this, you care and that you're probably a Democrat, so please go out and vote. That would and be not my just advice. federal elections, but also also state and local elections. Um, we had Amanda Littman on the podcast a few weeks ago, and you know she made that point so clear that we have you know a federal election, but we also have fifty state elections and thousands of local elections. So um, you know whether you're young, whether you're an older generation, just keep voting and pay especially attention to uh, those down ballot races. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGem Politics with Miles Taylor. We hope that you enjoyed it as much as Jill and I did, and that you'll tune in next week for another episode of iGem Politics. In the meantime, hopefully you'll subscribe on YouTube or wherever you follow your podcasts and leave us a five-star review and rating as that helps others find this podcast too. And the subscription is free, so go ahead and do it.